0: I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Tommy Shelby. He is the Caldwell Titcomb Professor of African and African American Studies and of Philosophy At Harvard University. His newest book is titled The Idea of Prison Abolition. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard
1: classmates. Okay, Ron Blau, class of 63, as most of these people are. Um, Went to WGBH a week after graduation and been in film, television, video, basically ever since, doing a lot of writing these days.
2: Ezra.
3: I'm a
2: a professor Shelby. I'm a a psychiatrist. who spent all my last 45 years on the faculty at Yale. Bill Collins
4: live in Aiken, South Carolina, with the Navy 20 years after Harvard, and then went to work for Westinghouse and environmental stuff, and then environmental Mm -hmm. stuff at the Savannah River site. Now retired from paying work, doing a lot of volunteer work my wife is here with me okay uh peter yes hi i'm
1: uh, a writer and an editor i live up in the northern tip of new hampshire and after harvard wow. i uh, was in snick in georgia and <clears throat> as a result of that and also because I like to smoke what they used to call what we used to call grass. I don't know what I don't know what you guys called it. Or what you guys call it now or what they call it now. But a result of all those things, I spent some time in quite a number of different jails and prisons around the country. So at that age I would have loved to abolish them. Oh, for sure. Okay, Doug. Hi, I'm Doug Shapiro, also class of 63. Uh, Lived in a variety of countries and had three different careers in clinical medicine, uh, in academic behavioral ecology, and then in the pharmaceutical industry. Okay,
0: Jeff Fox, another from the class of 63. Uh, well, after spending several years trying to understand how the world works through sociology, I'm now trying to do the same thing, but through fiction, living here in Spain. Okay, Alden. Uh, also class of 63. I guess I'm the only California representative now living just south of San Francisco. And my wife and I have a fundraising consulting firm. We work with nonprofits. Hey, John.
4: Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I worked for uh, 20 years editing and writing at the university. And uh, before that, in Chicago and New York at various newspapers and magazines. Marcy.
2: I'm, <clears throat> I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City and masterminding an archive of major public policy controversies over the last 45 years, all of which are still ongoing today. Okay, George.
4: George Jones, class of 63, currently in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
2: Dorothy. Hi, everyone. I'll uh, talk in ways that try to make connections. So class of 63, roommate of Emmy Schroder. Friend of Peter uh, and John Briscoe, <laughs> uh, and I was heading toward uh, the Congo to fight the uh, the uh, colonialists, and h- ended up in the Harlem Action Group because Emmy's friend Arma came back uh, <laughs> and uh, stayed at the Harlem in Harlem for the next twenty four years at the Youth Action Program, starting Youth Build, spreading it around the city, and then the country. And let's see, there's some other connection I wanted to make. Oh, uh, Alden, we need your help. Uh, the nonprofit that I chair in East Harlem has uh, housing for homeless people. And we need some legal help. To, I mean, some fundraising help to raise some money to preserve those uh, 124 units of housing. OK. Uh, hi, hi, Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy. <laughs> hi, hi Alden.
0: Uh, David Allen.
4: Here in Concord, Mass, uh, as I am wont to say, I've had a pastiche of life uh, in business, in university, and the last few decades it's been uh, activism, where for me democracy and preserving it, strengthening it has been the focus, both uh, big and small, both out there in the whole wide world and right here at home. Okay, Hampton. I, I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee, and Harvard 63, and you're Tommy Shelby. Hi. All
0: right, Professor, welcome. Thank
3: you for joining us, and uh, tell us about your work and the book. Well, thanks so much for having me. Y'all, y'all are living interesting lives, so quite a group here. I hope you'll <clears throat> um, find the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking about. Of interest, um, how long was it like me to, to, to speak, Kent? I know you, it's well, kind it's, of informal, it's, it's, and people want to ask questions. So... Yeah, it's up to you.
0: Uh, Ten minutes, you know, fifteen, something like okay. that. Whatever. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, um, I start with my my interest in the the topic. I got. In, I've been interested in um, the problem of. Concentrated disadvantage in uh, Black metropolitan communities, sometimes called ghettos, and I wrote a book, Dark Ghettos, to try to think about, um, you know, how to understand the way in which people have engaged in policy interventions in such communities, and some of the limits of the ways they've done that, and trying to have a broader view of the conditions of injustice that reproduce. That form of concentrated disadvantage, and in that context, I spent a lot of time talking about the problem of mass incarceration and how that's part of what reproduces that kind of disadvantage. Um, and you know, and there I make I, I, in that book, I had to think about the problem of crime maybe a little bit differently than some people typically think about the problem of crime, and I also had to make some suggestions about you know why it was necessary on grounds of justice to um, dramatically reduce our reliance on imprisonment as a way of dealing with the problem of of criminal deviance in the United States. I was aware of, at the time of writing that book, that book was 2016, Mm -hmm. of uh, the abolitionist movement and abolitionist ideas, but I didn't really take them up directly. And I, I, But I felt like it was something I really wanted to, was to think about uh, a challenge from a more radical uh, angle. You could think of it as comparable to um, the way in which the civil rights movement came to be received um, in the late 60s by Black power activists. We so have a mainstream movement pushing for what they would probably regard, and think they would regard as pretty radical reforms, and then a kind of a left insurgent movement asking for something even more radical in response. So it's, 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 it's analogous, right? So you have a, an ongoing criminal justice reform movement, lots of different players involved in that, trying to make changes in the criminal justice system, um, the local, state, federal level, jails, detention centers and the like. And then you have an insurgent radical movement challenging that movement by suggesting that it's not quite radical enough. There's something, um, a bigger thing to ask. Now, I'm a philosopher by training, um, but also by disposition. Um, and so uh, typically very intrigued by a radical, maybe even a, some might say a crazy idea and wanting to think if there's anything to it and if there uh, is reason to reconsider anything that I... Uh, previously believed in light of uh, this challenge so the this new book the idea of prison abolition was sort of me thinking through the prison abolitionist challenge to see what I could learn from it and um and try to draw what lessons I could from it but also in the course of that to say some things about where I thought might be the limits of that of that movement so that's kind of what the book is about is kind of a philosopher thinking through uh, a, a form of social critique and a set of ideals and to try to see what you can learn from it, but also to highlight places where I think there are issues with uh, the view. Um, probably worth, you know, as with any social movement, um, a lots of different positions fly under the same banner. So again, to go to the comparison of Black power, you had a range of different things that operated under that label, right? You could get everything from some form of revolutionary Marxism to uh, a form of black capitalism and can all fly under that same banner. So it's not that something similar happens under um, abolition. Lots of different ideas fly under that banner. Um, the way I think of it is is mostly consisting of two broad claims, right? So on the one hand, there's the thought that imprisonment is uh, an an immoral and uh, uh, ineffective way to respond to harmful wrongdoing. And on the basis of that, to think that there's a need for, to practically do away with the practice altogether. So it's immoral, so wrong and ineffective, it doesn't work. And then usually that's joined with the thought that, When we think about our most fundamental political aims, the aim should not be so much to reform prisons, which many abolitionists would say it won't succeed anyway, and it has the effect of legitimizing the practice of imprisonment. Instead, our aim really should be to sort of radically transform the broader society that we live in, with the objective being, among the objectives being, that we would no longer need to rely on the practice of imprisonment to control crime. So you see those two claims. Um, the way I approach it in the book is to mm-hmm. think about two broad questions that you might ask um, that aren't always distinguished in this domain. So one question has to do with, you know, where you're trying to figure out whether the practice of imprisonment could be justified despite existing ongoing structural injustices in the society. Or should we rather discontinue our use of prisons, at least in the meantime, or wh- whether that's wholly or in part, until we can try to rectify these broader structural injustices? So then, that's, that's mostly a question about what to do now, You're faced with broader structural injustices around issues of race and class, and many other things. And the uh, having the practice of imprisonment in that context. <laughs> To be not just perilous, which I think it clearly is, but also unjustified in light of the, the composition of the people who find themselves in prison. And you might think that the right response is to uh, either not rely on the practice of imprisonment or to dramatically reduce your, the reliance on prisons while those e- existing injustices are, are, are present. So you try to make the, the structural reform first, and then you could reconsider the question about whether you should have prisons or, or something like them. And then there's a broader question, maybe somewhat more philosophical, where you're trying to figure out whether um, the practice of imprisonment could ever be justified, even in a fully just society. Is justice compatible with the practice of imprisonment? That's a more more general philosophical question that you might ask. Um, And so I I see these as two questions and the book sort of takes up those two two broad questions. you know, you might, a lot of people wonder, you know, why, why bother considering a position like this? Um, because they might think it's just um, either too utopian, or just absurd to consider doing, not using, not relying on prisons. But I guess I, I think that as with any practice like this or any practice that causes great harm to, to people, um, deprives them of really fundamental freedoms, Affects not only them, but their family and their broader community. It's the kind of practice I think that's ripe for constant reflection and scrutiny. And the kind of thing that we, I think, we owe those who we impose the, such a penalty on uh, a full justification about why we think it's okay to treat them in these ways, even if we do that as a way of trying to respond to their criminal wrongdoing. And so I think it's a question that, that we should always be asking. Uh, it's a question we've asked about other forms of punishment in the past, whether that's uh, torture, maiming, death penalty. We do ask these questions about whether this is a penalty that it makes sense to, to justify, I mean, I'm sorry, makes sense to impose on someone even when they've done something really wrong. I think the same question could be asked about imprisonment. Is this a thing we really should be engaging in? Um, and we can think about what alternatives it might be uh, in, that, in that context. The book is structured around uh, a kind of dialogue with Angela Davis and and her work. Um, So she's sort of the principal interlocutor, right? That I kind of think through the arguments of abolitionists through, Uh, as I said before, the abolitionist movement is not unified by a single philosophy. Uh, a lot of uh, ideological diversity amongst abolitionists. You know, you have Christian pacifists, you have anarchists, revolutionary Marxists, and other strains of thought. I take up the question through um, the lens of the, what some people would call the Black radical tradition. this a tradition that I think of myself as uh, aligned with, a tradition that includes such figures as W.E.B. Du Bois, Richard Wright, Franz Fanon, and of course, Angela Davis herself. And Davis has been thinking about these issues for a very long time, for more than 50 years as a political prisoner herself and as someone who's been engaged in trying to free political prisoners, trying to resist what she would call the prison industrial complex, (laughs) natural interlocutor. And one further reason is um, she's uh, uh, a professional philosopher, PhD in philosophy, um, and in many ways uh, takes up the questions in a way that's that's familiar to someone like me who's uh, uh in in her field um maybe i'll say something about what people when people are objecting to prisons what they're objecting to just very generally and then i'll say some things about what some of the main conclusions i have in the book before we open up things for a broader discussion um so remember i said that when people are thinking about um uh, you know why we need to abolish prisons they, it's partly on the grounds that it's immoral. It's just a, it's just a wrongful practice. And so what you'll see in a lot of abolitionist writings is uh, a, a series of objections to the practice. So one objection is um, one I take very seriously is that uh, the prison system is an instrument of political repression. It's a way of containing, neutralizing, sometimes killing off political enemies as an attempt to kind of maintain the status quo. Another criticism is that people think that the practice is um, inherently dehumanizing and inhumane, and so it can't be justified um, to people if you're going to treat them in these ways that no human being should be treated, even if they do something really wrong. Sometimes people will object that the practice is in some way akin to slavery, And we sort of saw this in the last election. There were lots of initiatives around the country where people were um, attacking the um, Fourteenth Amendment and sorry, I'm sorry, Thirteenth Amendment, and um, suggesting that it legitimizes the continuance of of imprisonment. And a lot of people have likened imprisonment to to slavery. So that's one kind of objection you'll get. Sometimes the thought will be not so much that it's akin to imprint to, to slavery, but is a, uh, that imprisonment is a legacy of slavery. And that can be a way of calling into question the practices as well. Um, you'll sometimes get the thought that the practice is in some way racist, either that it's an, an inherently racist or it's a form of institutional racism or that it perpetuates racism. And so in a lot of them, especially in the the Black radical tradition, this is a focus on the criminal justice system, the way in which it's bound up with racist practices. So that's an uh, an objection that people make. Um, Davis, um, as a socialist, sees the the practice of imprisonment as a long abolition tradition within socialism that goes back in well over 100 years. But, um, She's concerned with the ways in which the practice of imprisonment is bound up with economic exploitation for capitalist gain. And so she, in many ways, sees her opposition to imprisonment as part of a broader opposition to um, what she would regard as neoliberal practices and uh, the the ways in which um, capitalist practices are are bound up with extracting um, uh, financial benefits through the suffering um, and sacrifices of others. So she's broadly interested in a critique of law along those lines which would be natural. Um, so those are like just a list of some of the the main kind of objections to imprisonment but there's also the thought that uh, look this is as a practice for responding to crime that it's really not terribly effective. It's not really very good at reducing crime and some people will point to mass incarceration as a uh, to, as part of a case against it, that um, locking up lots of people doesn't seem to have the effect on crime that you might want at great cost, not just financial, but on the lives of those who are, are imprisoned. Um, and so typically, there'll be a thought that we should be trying to experiment with other, other alternatives that might be, might be more effective, some that are uh, less harmful, uh, less violent, and that might do a better job at responding to the problem. So in the book, what I do is I kind of walk through these various projections. I think they're um, in, in all of them, there's something to be learned. And I try to draw that out. And, but I think in all of them there are some limits. And I try to explain what I think those are is as well. So the book is structured in that, in that way. So let me sort of, sort of quickly summarize what some of the main conclusions of the of the book, and we can talk about them. Um one of the things I do is I argue that the practice of imprisonment, uh, at least under certain circumstances, and we could talk about what those are, uh, that it, 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 it is or at least can be a socially necessary and morally justified means to reduce the problem of serious crime. So in my view, prison is sometimes, though not always, not even mostly, the, the right answer to um, come to wrongdoing. I also argue that imprisonment, though often in practice, grossly unjust and unspeakably cruel practice. I still think it's not inherently and not incorrigibly uh, inhumane or dehumanizing or racist or exploitative. So (coughs) form is possible, difficult, but possible. But I think that the aspiration for a prison-free society, I think this is a a worthy goal, if if only a long-term aspiration. That is, we should really try to experiment with less harmful alternatives like restorative justice and other kinds of practices, much more than we currently do. You have some of this happening already in some places and we should be thinking about what, what might be possible there. In the meantime, I think substantial decarceration is going to be called for where here I have in mind, we would use prisons in a very restricted way, really for only the the worst offenses. And by which I mean, those offenses that cause really great irreparable harm or lasting trauma, Um, not all crimes of that sort, not all existing felonies would fall into that category. And we should do that until we can create at least until we create much more just circumstances so that the people who often find themselves caught up in the prison system have much better life prospects, much better chance in life, a much better chance to avoid becoming a wrongdoing they sometimes find themselves caught up in. Um, I want to make clear that while I think that criminal justice reform is important, indeed vital thing to be engaged in. I agree with the abolitionists that any such approach to reform the criminal justice system should be set within a broader uh, collective objective of restructuring society as a whole so that there is an attention to the forms of inequality and concentrated wealth um, to the forms of, of racial domination that continue to exist and structure lives of too many that those things are responded to as we respond to the problems of the criminal justice system. So it should be, they, they should go together and we shouldn't just try to just reform the criminal justice system while leaving so much injustice uh, um, left in, in place. Some people uh, will and have regarded the book as in some ways uh, the case against prison abolition, but um, that, that I should emphasize that's not really how I view it. Um, I'm a philosopher, so it is in my nature to uh, draw attention to weaknesses and arguments where I see them. And so I do do that, and that sometimes is unwelcome by people who have strong, very strong um, convictions about a thing. Um, I don't necessarily think that the fact that some of those arguments have weaknesses mean necessarily that the conclusion that those arguments were meant to establish that the conclusions are, are clearly wrong, they might be correct. But I do think some of the arguments that are presented are, um, are not as powerful as some people think. And I draw attention to that. But I do try to synthesize the best ideas from kind of radical reformist movements and abolitionist ones to try to articulate a political philosophy that I um, think is, um, can stand up to greater, to greater scrutiny. And so that's, that's, that's largely what I what I attempt to do um maybe one thing I'll say uh and then I'll open it up to to questions is about there's a kind of response to abolition that just says look this is just utopian and we shouldn't really entertain it seriously because it's not it's not either not going to happen or um there's no way to really do away with crime or something like that, and I guess I've not really found that way of responding that compelling uh, as a way of responding to it to the to the issue. Um, you know, I do think it's important to search for effective alternatives to to prisons. I think that's an entirely worthwhile project, um, right. and. Uh, I do think it makes sense to try to create social conditions where prisons aren't needed. Um, and I continue to think that uh, we should avoid complacency around this practice, just treating it like, well, what can you do? you always going to be prisons. Um, there weren't always prisons. And um, we have to ask questions about whether there, there should always be, be prisons. Maybe they're needed now, but maybe there are conditions under which um, we might not need to rely on such a, such a, a destructive, destructive practice. So with that, maybe I'll take whatever questions you have on your mind. I can talk I'm a professor. So I could talk long, a long time, but I'll, but I'll try to avoid doing that. I do have a chapter just called the prison industrial complex that is largely about the relationship between, um, you know, um, business and the prison systems. Uh, and, you know, I agree with the thought that people shouldn't be made to force that is to work for the uh benefit of the private benefit of, of of others and so um i think there's very not a lot of that happening it, it depends on how you think of it uh, uh uh whether they're being made to to do it we can talk more about that if you like um uh the one qualification on on that is it's hard to see how you can separate the the modern prison system entirely from from uh for-profit businesses, just because the a prison system's kind of like a little city, you know. So uh any 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 prison in Christmas institutions you, you, you need lots, they need lots of things. Um and um not just food and uh, things of that sort, but you know, they, they need clothing. It's got electricity. There's all, all kinds of things you 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 need that is inevitably going to come in a in a capitalist economy from from the from the from the private sector. Um, some abolitionists, uh, like Davis, are very opposed to any um, for-profit dimension to incarceration. And I just don't see that that's um, possible uh, without uh, a transition to, to, to a socialist economy. Um, but Can I don't- I say know, something?
2: I don't... Can I interrupt you just for a
3: second? Sure. I, mean,
2: I would say that it is definitely possible and that if we were creative and uh, even in that trend, even if we haven't made a transition to a, a new economy, which I believe we should, but even in that process, we could, you know, ex-offenders could create cooperatives that are worker-owned, that provided everything that the prison needed. And the, the privatization of the public sector goes well beyond prisons and its schools and colleges and the military. And people don't talk enough about the privatization. I call it the profitization of the public sector. If it were done by nonprofits or done by worker cooperatives, it could be done, uh, even even and of course i agree with you that we should diminish radically the number of people in prison um go back to where we were in the 80s you know so many fewer people sorry to interrupt you
3: yeah i mean if you if you were willing to do as to to basic sh- create um effectively an independent penal colony you could you certainly do it where where every everything is being supported by um by prisoners. But if you if you've got staff and including medical staff, uh again, medical resources, where are those coming from? Where's the equipment coming from? It's just hard to kind of totally cut yourself free from from it. Maybe there's a way in which you could you, you could do, it, but in the modern prison system it's hard for me to see how you could completely separate it. Um, but maybe we could pursue that more. Um I think on the youth when I totally agree. I mean, I just think, you know, we, there are a lot of youth that are bound up in, a, in a, the, 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 the prisoners don't really need to be, and we shouldn't be responding to youth that way. And I probably would have a more expansive view of youth than maybe than the U S we typically do. Um, we know enough about psychological development you know that, that the brain is still developing for many people into, into their, their early twenties. And, um, we also see that Crime uh, people typically kind of age out of a lot of crime as they get they get they get older. Um, they're less inclined to engage in kind of aggressive behavior. So I think how you respond to very young people, I would see that as a different matter. You don't you don't respond to it in a punitive way, really at all. At least I I wouldn't be in favor of that. I mean, you bring up Norway. I mean, which is moving you know has moved over over decades toward a, a pretty purely rehabilitative system. Um. And there's a lot to be said for that if you can do it well. It takes a lot of resources <laughs> to do it well. Um, it's, and it's, it's not very, private
1: either.
4: Excuse me? It's not private either. I think in the Scandinavia the, I don't think they have private prisons.
3: Right. They do not. And, and we, we don't have I mean, I the private prisons is, is a pretty small right. big, you know, part of the U.S. system. I mean, there's only like 9% of prisoners are in private right. prisons, so it's not a big Piece right. of it, um, but yeah, we don't need to do them at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and you can see why people did it in the same way they do it with other things, right? As, uh, um, uh, as Dorothy pointed out, there, there's the there's a, a cost cutting dimension here where public goods are being provided at a, at a at a low cost by contracting out to to various firms to carry those things out. That's the way that, and often they can do that because. Um, the, the firms are relying on cheap labor or um, non-unionized labor um, It enables them to kind of keep the cost to keep the costs down. You can see why people do it. But there are many, 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 many problems surrounding it. And we do very little on reentry um, uh, inside and outside. I mean, I think, that, you know, that's one difference with the Norway system. It's like if you're if you're or if you're very if you're structuring it toward with the thought that eventually people will join prisoners will rejoin society as equals and they have to be prepared to do that, equipped to do that. And so that means a lot of in-prison services and then a lot of services once they're released. And that's not a thing we, we really do in, in the, at, at the scale you would need to to do it to, to have any real success. So our recidivism rates are extremely high um, for that, for that reason, I think. I mean, I, I think, I mean, one thing, that when you're thinking about in, in prison, one thing that I, I was somewhat disappointed by him, reading a lot of the abolitionist literature is there was not a lot of detailed discussion about what a prison is. Um, and I think if we you step back and you think, well, so, so you have this general practice of of, of incarceration. We use that as a, the general term, right? Where you're, um, there's a form of institutional confinement and there is a, a, a form of Custodial care or guardianship of those because of the the way in which it kind of is a totalizing institution, as Irving Goffman might put it. Right. So you've got institutional confinement and kind of in a, in a controlled, secure space. <clears throat> people can't leave or without <coughs> the authorization of those in charge. Um, you um, have it's, it's it's a hierarchical practice where uh, people are dictated to about where they're going to be and what the rules are are going to be inside. And um, and it's the responsibility of those who are in control of the, the carceral institution to see to the, the day-to-day needs of those who are confined because they can't see to the, their needs on their own. Um, but that practice, that general practice, it can be deployed for many purposes and is deployed for, for many purposes. There are purposes that are, that are even outside of the criminal justice system, uh, whether that's um, uh, prisoners of war, in the rare case of quarantine, there are going to be cases um, uh, for psychiatric, psychiatric treatment if the, if the person is um, dangerous to themselves or others and, and is involuntarily committed. Um, uh, so you, it can be deployed for lots of different purposes. And even when you are responding to crime, it can also be deployed for lots of different ends, right? You can be focused on the moral reform of the prisoners, in the case of rehabilitation, you could be focused on uh, general deterrence, trying to create a disincentive for people to engage in, in crime. You can be engaged in um, uh, the aim of retribution, which many Americans are, are are drawn to. I myself am not, but many many people are. Um, uh, so there's lots of different things you could be trying to do with it. And I think that's one of the things we don't probably do enough of. Uh, uh, in public discourse, is ask ourselves, uh, why are we doing this? Like, what is the what is the aim in in this context? Um, and if you're like me, who's very skeptical of retribution as a, as a legitimate aim of government to ensure that people endure the suffering that they deserve, that to have that be an aim of government, I think is is, is troubling. And um, there's a, a vast literature about this. Um, but a lot of people are drawn to it. They want to see they want to see people pay. and if you if you think of the practice of incarceration as primarily to ensure that those who do wrong endure the suffering they deserve, you're you're going to get certain kinds of relations with um, the, the people inside, with both with um, the the staff in the prisons and with their fellow citizens once they leave, who might continue to have animus toward them uh, as a result. But if you, if you thought the point of it was really to just reduce crime, that's all you're trying to do is to bring about a reasonable level of public safety. You never can get perfect safe safety, right? But you bring down a reasonable level of, of, of public safety, then you might structure the internal institution somewhat differently, depending on what you're trying to, to do. But I don't think we have those discussions as much publicly as we probably should. And we kind of allow the the, the desire for retribution to, be expressed openly without much challenge in, in public discourse. And I think that's that's troubling. Uh, on the staff and guards, I mean there's a parallel problem with policing. Obviously here, um, uh it's complicated, you know, and it's hard to know how to think about it, be curious what you all think about it. I mean, so you could think that um we don't really we don't really have the best people for the for the job, right? I mean, we know we're not we're we're drawing uh you don't need a lot of people, but if you get enough people who are eager to exercise interpersonal power over others or to abuse them, um, in those roles, you're gonna get a mess. And you can have that in corrections and you can have that in in policing. And there's a question about how to respond to that or whether that's a thing you could ever really avoid, is drawing in people who seem to take pleasure in um in uh abusing others and seeing that they um taking out their aggression against them and the like, right? And it's a harder question. I mean, uh if you if obviously obviously had a, a much smaller, I mean we have, you know, any given day almost two million people locked up, right? And, and so if you if you had a much smaller <laughs> system, you you, you like, the staffing problem might not be as, as dramatic <clears throat> as it is, but we have when, when it's so vast, and you're in. You're not willing to, as a public, not willing to pay that much for the work. You you know you get what you pay for, as it were. You're not you're not going to get really high high quality staff in those in those question institute in institutions. But I I find this a troubling thing. I still get stuck on of whether is it is it just a staffing problem that you could fix with proper screening of who you hire and proper compensation for them, or is it really that it's something about institutions of this sort that if you put people in those roles, you can expect a good number of them to be very abusive to those who are under their care. And I'm not, I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's one that probably we should think about more often than we, than we do. we well,
0: um Alden. Dorothy brought up the uh, issue of Norway and you commented on that a little bit. Have you looked at other societies to see how they deal with people who don't follow the rules of the society. Um, how about uh, Native American tribes? Uh, how about uh, uh, Africa? How about uh, Europe? How, what did the Greeks do? Uh, Romans and so on. And I know dismemberment is one one option. Uh, what What are the, What else uh, What else do you know?
3: There are people do all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, uh, you know, and I think in the, in the, you go into the ancient world, um, it, it wasn't typical to use incarceration as the, the penalty. Um, you might hold someone uh, before they go whatever, go, whatever hearing or trial that they might undergo, you, and you might hold them prior to the point of imposition of punishment, which could be, and often was physical in some way, a form of, of, of torture or maiming or, or death. Um, was very common in, in in the ancient world. You could cut, kind of see why that would be the case. Um, uh, in other, you know, contemporary societies, you, you um, know, all, all modern nations have prisons um, of some sort, uh, but they can have, as I just mentioned, different aims, things they're trying to achieve within them, and you'll get different practices as a result, depending on what you're trying to, to do uh, with them. It's hard to get really reliable data in some places. Uh, so it's harder to know, get really reliable data on what prisons are like in some parts of, of, of okay. Africa, in Latin America, some parts of Asia, it's harder to get. You can get much better reliable data with places that are more comparable to the US, whether that's in Canada or, or Europe, UK um, uh, and the like. And, and there is a lot. on um, There, and and you you, you see a lot of variation there as well. Most people, most of those countries have done away with the death penalty. I mean, we have not entirely, Um, but you can see how once you, if you give up on maiming, torture, execution, you know why one would probably find themselves backed into relying on some form of incarceration to control <laughs> crime. Um, if you open yourself up to those other things, then you then you you will see other you know a wider wide variety. And so, in societies that are okay with maiming execution, they might rely somewhat less on incarcer- uh, incarceration. In um, there's also a difference in the type of society, right? So. It's in, a, in a mass society like one we live in wow. we're a society of, of, of strangers and it's very pluralist there's no we don't share a common um uh, culture or a common set of basic uh values about how to live and so it's you it's uh, some of the things you might use in a more traditional smaller more homogeneous society you can't really rely on so you can rely a lot on the stigma of coming to wrongdoing in, 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 in smaller traditional societies. So, so my colleague, uh, former colleague, now, Kwame um, uh, Anthony Appius, we might read his column in the New York Times sometimes. Um, you know, we grew up in Kamasi in, in, in Ghana. And, a sm- and in the smaller villages, people, when people did sometimes really terrible crimes, um, people would just go a really long time without speaking to them. And it would be really terrible. Because you're you're in this community where you that you you're really relying on your 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 standing within that community to kind of to live and live and 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 to to do well, um, it's 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 kind of hard to reproduce that on on a, on a mass society. We're not tied together in those ways where your reputational damage of that sort can could be enough to curb the the problem. You mentioned in, in some. Indigenous communities, um, you know, there there is a book just came out like two years ago. I can't think of the name of it right now. I want to pull a surprise in history, but I can't think of the name of it. Um, And it it kind of tells a story of the use of restorative justice in um, many Native American communities um, to find ways of um, through a combination of reparation, restitution of some sort, and Kind of repair the relationship between the 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 the, the wrongdoer and the and, and the one wronged um, was a more effective way of dealing with these problems than imposition of a severe of a severe penalty. But again, there's a difference in the in the form the form of social life that kind of would go along with a practice of that sort than what you might expect in a a, a society of 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 you know four hundred million. Um, but I went on too long. But that, but yeah. But there's a lot of a lot of variation. It's a very good book. Sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, I meant to get the, get rid of that. Um, there's a book. Uh, I'll I'll try to get to remember before we get off the, off the call. That does a comparison of uh, I want to say eleven societies and their prisons, all contemporary, not not an ancient world. Um, I'll, 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 I'll find it before the end of it. But I find it extremely helpful for those who are interested in those comparative questions. I, I thought it was, 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 was extremely helpful, but I, I'll, I'll find Where it. it
1: okay, Ronnie. Um, there's a Stanford professor named Robert Sapolsky who wrote a very big book called Behave in which he demolishes the idea of free will Six Ways to Sunday. And he has a chapter called, this is not the exact title, but it's about free will and the criminal justice system. And if you take free will away, and you say nobody's here because they chose a life of crime, it simplifies things a lot. I mean, then there's no justification for retribution. There's no justification for punishment insofar as it doesn't make people better enter better able to enter society and he's not for complete abolition he says there are some people you know you have to protect society from some people who are going to keep doing really bad things but i think it it just strikes me as it if you if you accept that idea of you're not here because of free will it simplifies so many things having to do with incarceration and i'm just wondering what you think both the idea of free will that, that you chose to get here and how, if people would accept that notion, what it would do to the criminal justice system.
3: Yeah, go for the big philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, so I don't forget, I just wanna mention the name of the book. It's called, yeah, Incarceration Nations by Boz um, Drazen. So, if you're interested in it it's, I thought it was one of the better books I've seen at kind of looking at like ten or eleven different societies and different things they do, and she visited the prisons and it's it's, it's very informative and useful.
0: you put uh, a note in the chat box?:
3: Yes, I can um yeah, the free will question um so I think it does simplify things but at all but at great cost <laughs> um. So it's hard for me to see how the the notion how the, the notion of justice has any purchase in a world without um, uh, uh, the thought that at least some of us um, uh, can be held responsible for what we do. <laughs> um, so I don't see how it could be the case that people are people are owed um, certain forms of treatment. If nobody could have, can can um, uh, avoid um, treating them in ways that they that that we would regard as wrong, so I so it, it's a great cost, right? I mean, so uh, in the the, our, our, the very notion of our, our very notions of morality, you know, what we owe to each other, what you know, what rights people have, um, are all built on the idea. That at least for many of us, most of us, um, that we can refrain from violating people's rights. But if 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 nobody can if, if nobody can be um be said to be held responsible for violating any, any anybody's rights, I just think, I think it just kind of makes makes all of that meaningless. So it's 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 hard for me to see how it's supposed to work. Um, it might also be a question about what people are imagining when they say it <laughs> will. What level of control they're... There, there might be imagining a level of control that's kind of not realistic, right? Um, you know what we speak of exe- executive functioning, and that ability to kind of like supposed to distinguish us from some of some other similar animals, where we're able to act contrary to impulse or 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 habit um, or urges that sometimes we 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 might feel inclined to do a thing. But we can, we can, and at least in a calmer moment, um, reflect and decide to act contrary to those <clears throat> impulses, urges, and and habits. That that basic idea, um, I don't see how it, uh, how the, the, our very ideas of morality can survive without some such some such idea.
1: Just a quick footnote, and that is, I've been thinking along those lines since I read that, and it does affect everything i'm 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 very much interested in the climate for one thing and if i don't think that the bad guys like charles Koch, i mean there's a big list of bad people or exxon that they chose to do it it still means what they did is a fact and if i'm not trying to do retribution against them but just trying to act effectively to make things better um I don't know. It's a, it's a for me personally. It's a good thought experiment, and I'll leave it at that.
3: It is, and I think that can be sometimes the useful attitude to have. That is, like that, what we what we're going to do is is this is abolitionists would put it this way. What we're focused on is is harm reduction, but 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 now of course you you also lose some of the other notions that they might want, like restorative justice, because it also relies on the thought and reparation relies on the thought that people have wronged someone and that they. They, they could have done otherwise, and that's why they owe reparation. Um, well,
1: but if, if it's not because they, they did something, then you could still have reparations. You're just not calling them. You, you just don't say they chose to do it. <clears throat> it's still a bad act.
3: Right, but then anyone, I mean, it's the difference between trying to uh, r- repair the harm done so you might, any, which anyone can do, right? Doesn't have to be the person who, who committed the wrong, that anyone can try to make the person better off, try to help them recover from whether it's a financial loss or the trauma or whatever it is, to try to help them. Anyone can try to help them and try to, so in that sense, repair. But it's not reparative justice. It's not a form of restorative justice unless the person who did the wrong is the one who, who owes the repair. But that requires that being the case that they're responsible for what they did. So I don't see how you, how you retain the notion of, of justice, restorative justice, or other forms of justice without some such idea that people can be held responsible for what they did because they could, have, they could have done otherwise. It might have been very difficult. And for some, it might be more difficult than others. I mean, you know, the prison is filled, you know, 95% of people are, are male. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if it turns out that, that men have somewhat is somewhat more difficult for them to restrain acting on, on an aggressive impulse than than women i wouldn't surprise me i know that for a fact but it wouldn't surprise me if that were true but i certainly don't think that the fact that it was more difficult means that they can't be held responsible for for what they did i mean so so i agree there's going to be very there are going to be some differences and there are going to be some people who are outside of the 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 space of what you can call resp- uh, uh, being responsible agent, they'll they they're, they're not capable of of con- controlling their impulses in that in that way, and they're going to be dealt with differently, right? That's you have a treatment response to them as opposed to uh, a punitive or a justice response to to their actions. I just don't think that that spreading that to us all, I don't, I don't, I, I find um, kind of hard to hard to swallow. But maybe, maybe there's something to it. <laughs> well,
0: Let's- thank you. <laughs> last question. Last question, Bill. You get the last word. Last question. I think you're m- muted.
4: You're muted. Yeah, some comments. You know, I, I lived in a, in a rather specialized society for 20 years in the Navy on board ship. And we often had people, not great many, but the great A few people would find it difficult to follow the rules, whether arriving at work on time or not using drugs or whatever. The punishments for those were usually relatively mild. The idea was to try and encourage them not to do that. For example, as captain of a ship, I could cause them to lose some pay. I could cause them to lose, be demoted in grade. I could cause them to be restricted to the ship. I could even send them off to the, the brig for three days on bread and water. That was the extent of my ability, and that's the kind of punishments we impose, not severe in most cases. Um, That's one comment. A second comment, I certainly think we have free will. Certainly what we can do is limited. We don't have absolute ability to, we're not all powerful, we have limited abilities, but we have free will. Now, people who are ill, mentally ill, have much less ability to choose than most people do, I would say regarding retribution many of our fellow citizens claim to be christians but among them are those who want retribution they don't seem to be following very well the uh, teachings of jesus on the sermon of the mount you know make no resistance to the evil man if a man strikes you on one cheek turn and offer him the other and so on and uh, the idea that of retribution is is ingrained in a lot of people even among those who claim to be christians and i find that disturbing we ought to be aiming at protection and reduction of of crime but not retribution that's why the death penalty is so terrible i think and uh i could say a lot about that but those are a few comments i think that regarding prison guards You know, the old adage, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So you have to be very careful who you pick for prison guards. They don't abuse people because it's a natural tendency and they will do things hidden uh, in various ways. I mean, I look at the sex abuse scandal in the Catholic church and it occurs in other churches as well. People who are regarded as beyond you know, just given an Im- complete trust and then abuse that trust. It's a terrible thing. And uh, we have to try to prevent that. Not, uh, not necessarily, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a <clears throat> tooth is often cited. But that kind of lex talionis was an effort to reduce the amount of violence inflicted upon ma- wrongdoers so that you wouldn't kill somebody for stealing a chicken.
0: Right, right. Coming. <laughs> well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. Wonderful to see this group still meeting.
0: Yeah, yeah. And good luck with the book.
3: Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Okay.
0: Thank you, everybody. Thank you.
3: See you now. Thank you. I'll be buying the book. <laughs> okay. Right. Please send me any thoughts you have about it if you do happen to look at it.
2: Okay. That's great.
0: That was Harvard Professor Tommy Shelby. His newest book is titled The Idea of Prison Abolition. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also streams on WIXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.